How would you answer the question, why did Jesus die on the cross, and who put him there? I guess it's actually two questions. How would you answer those questions? Why did Jesus die on the cross, and who put him there? These are foundational questions, really, to the Christian faith that get at the heart of it. And in one sense, uh, this might seem straightforward and simple. Uh, Jesus died in the place of his sinful people, bearing the penalty that they deserve for their sins. He was accomplishing redemption, and it was the Father himself who put Jesus there to pour out his wrath upon them for the sins of all who would believe in Jesus. That might be how some of us would answer along those lines, and that I think is obviously right and true. And yet when we read the Gospels, when we read the narratives of what happened when Jesus went to the cross, it's not as if the Father steps down in some visible form and then hangs Jesus there uh, on the cross. That's not how it works. Rather, what we witness are human beings, human agents doing this work, human actors executing their desires upon the Son of Man. Moreover, not only do we see these humans working here, we also see Satan at work. And so the answer kind of gets a little more complicated when we try to determine what's Jesus doing there and how did he get on the cross. So as we come to Luke, the end of Luke 21 and into Luke 22 today, we come to a portion of Scripture that reveals to us what is happening when Jesus goes to the cross and why he's there. And it reveals three converging reasons, three converging motives, purposes in Jesus being placed on the cross. We will see Satan is involved. He has his motives and purposes and desires in this. We will see various men involved with their own purposes and motives. And then finally, God himself is also at work in bringing about his much greater purposes. And so I invite you to read with me Luke 21, starting in verse 37, and we'll read to 22, verse 6. Luke 21 and verse 37. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him in the absence of a crowd. And so first notice here that at the cross, man is pouring out his hatred toward God. He's pouring out his rebellion against God. Uh, Jesus was placed on the cross because, at least on one level, man was expressing his rebellion and his hatred of God and God's rules and God's laws and God's command. And so... Uh, in verse 37 here, we're told Jesus' pattern. Remember, we are now in the last week leading up to Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection. And we're told what was going on in these days, kind of in the early part to the middle of this last week. He was teaching in the temple by day, and then he was lodging out on the Mount of Olives by night. Kind of uh, 
possible, possible that they were camping. Remember, this is a, a celebration, as we'll get to in a moment, where people are traveling to Jerusalem from all over. So they're lodging out of the Mount of Olives, and by day in the morning, early in the morning, he's at the temple preaching. And Luke mentions, he tells us there, that the crowds were gathering to him early, first thing in the morning. And so, presumably, all throughout the day, Jesus is with people, he's around people, they are coming to listen to him. And Luke, once again, is painting a picture for us in these verses and into chapter 22 of a crowd that is generally favorable toward Jesus. Uh, the main source of opposition, it's not the only opposition, but the main source of human opposition in Luke is from the leaders of, of the Jews, which we'll see more of in a moment. Now, I don't think this means that every person that is positive towards Jesus is necessarily believing in him in a saving fashion. Um, it just means they're generally positive toward him. If we, if we think of what, how John portrays the crowd in his gospel, um, Jesus is very wary of the large crowds, but the large crowds are positive toward him. They follow him in large numbers. They want to be near him. And, uh, and so, so that's, I think, what Luke is getting at here. Generally speaking, I'm sure some are believing in him, uh, some are just glad to see him do great miracles and are intrigued by him. But overall, the picture here is of, of a large amount of people that are generally uh, happy with him, favorable in some sense toward him. And so we have here the word of God himself, the word of God made flesh. He is standing in the temple daily here. He's teaching the people. And the people are coming to hear him. Those who are in darkness are being illuminated by the Word of God made flesh. And this, I think, helpfully sets up uh, the context of chapter 22 and really reveals to us just how horrific and how depraved this opposition is to him that we will read about here. So look again at verse 1 of chapter 22. It says, Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. In these verses, we are told that the Passover was drawing near. This is basically would kick off this Feast of Unleavened Bread. Of course, we read about this earlier in Exodus 12, the first time, well, when the Passover took place and when God is instituting that through Moses for the people to observe regularly. And we're told here that during this time, in verse 2, that these chief priests and scribes, they were seeking to put Jesus to death. They were seeking. Notice how that's said. They were this was an ongoing activity, right? They're, they're, they're plotting to put him to death. It's not just a last-minute, heat-of-the-moment kind of reaction. They get mad and they overreact. They are daily looking, they're seeking, trying to figure out how to do this, how to put him to death. And the, the, the problem, the reason why they can't just grab him and just at any old time and just do away with him is because they feared the people, because the people are generally in favor of what Jesus is doing, generally positive toward him at this point. They can't just grab him and do whatever they want with him because they're afraid the people will revolt and something bad will happen to them. And so they have to scheme. They have to plan for this. They have to figure out the best way to do this. And they need some, at least some appearance of validity to their actions. So as we get later on to the mockery of a trial, uh, there will be at least some sense of guilt they're going to impute to Jesus. So again, just consider for a moment once more that we're talking about here, Luke is telling us about the leadership of 
the people of God, of, of Israel, of the new co old covenant people of God. The leaders of the Jews are acting in this way. Jesus is in the temple. He is teaching the word of God as nobody else ever has. You think of other places where we're told he, people are amazed. He teaches with authority unlike the other teachers. With perfect wisdom, perfect insight into what exactly it means. Showing them how all of this ultimately is pointing to him. We've seen him do this throughout the book of Luke in a number of, a number of different places. And here are these leaders supposed to be championing this true understanding of the scriptures. And instead they are plotting. They are seeking to destroy the Son of Man. And here, here is the depravity of man in opposition to God on full display. Uh, let's continue in verse 3. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And so here we are, Luke reintroduces us to Judas. He has told us about Judas back in chapter 6 when he talked about the twelve and he listed them off. He told us back then that Judas, he's listed last and said that he is the one who would betray him. And now he's bringing back up. Uh, this Judas again, reminding us that he was part of the twelve. We'll come back to Satan's involvement in just a moment. But we see here what Judas winds up doing. He confers with these scribes, with these priests, about how it is he might betray Jesus to them. The, the precise motives of Judas, what exactly is going on in his brain, it's, it's not altogether clear, and, and there's some debate on this. Uh, we know some things for sure. Uh, John chapter 12 tells us that he was in charge of the money bags, tells us that he was a thief. Uh, he certainly sought out some benefit for himself in this transaction. He asks for money. He's, he gets money. I forget if it's Matthew or Mark. Phrases it as he, he, he approaches them and says, what will you give me if I give him to you? So greediness for money was certainly a part of the picture, but it's still hard to fathom how this man, uh, a disciple, part of the twelve, spends three years of his life with the Lord himself, Jesus, witnessing all he's done, witnessing his compassion upon people, hearing his instruction, spending time with him, and yet here he is, willing to sell him out for very little. It's hard to imagine or hard to know precisely what all is going in his mind. I mean, it's not a ton of money he ends up receiving, 30 pieces of silver. It's something, but it's not a lot. It's hard to get our minds around, and I don't know what else to say, except that this is a picture of depravity in perhaps its worst possible form. That one who could be with the Lord for three years in such a close manner could yet betray him and sell him out to death. It's a vivid depiction of the depths of human depravity. Uh, ver verse 5 continues, And they were glad, and they agreed to give him money. And so he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. So Luke tells us the priests and these, these scribes, they are glad. That is the word for rejoice. They rejoice. They celebrate. They have now, they've been scheming. They're seeking to put Jesus to death. They're afraid of the crowds. They haven't figured out a way to arrest him yet without there being a mob that will destroy them. 
And now along comes Judas, and now they have their man. They have their way. Judas has access to their itinerary. He knows where they are, where they spend their nights, where they will be. He can, uh, he can sell them out when there is not a crowd around. They now have their man to, to help them pull off their scheming. And so they rejoice. This is joyful relief. They are happy. They are glad about this. This isn't just a reluctant, ah, we have to do this, so we'll do this. They're joyful about it. They're glad. Their hearts are rejoicing in this fact. Here's their chance. And they rejoice at this tremendous wickedness. It's, of course, wicked to condemn any innocent man, but more wicked still, and perhaps most wicked of all, is when that man is the perfect son of God in human flesh. This, again, this is all a picture of human depravity. Now, the Bible's teaching about human sinfulness does not say that every single individual is as wicked as he or she could possibly be. doesn't mean that every single individual uh, is committing the exact same kinds of acts as Judas. We can distinguish, we can understand that Hitler... Uh, as a particularly wicked individual giving himself to some particularly wicked sins. We can also see Judas in that kind of category, selling out the Lord Jesus for money. We know that not every person commits the greatest amount of evil they possibly could. Thankfully, mercifully, God does restrain human evil in this world. But the Bible does teach that every person as a child of Adam, is spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins, and that we cannot do what is ultimately pleasing to him. And even the best actions of fallen humanity are, as Isaiah says, filthy rags, because they do not stem from faith. They are not righteous deeds before God. And we see human sinfulness and depravity all throughout the Bible storyline. All throughout the scriptures we see it. It's not in one place or just two places. It's everywhere. We see this wickedness play out. You've read your Old Testament, I trust, and you've seen this over and over again. It's almost, it can border on depressing and discouraging when you read through this. We see it in the heathen, pagan nations that rage against the Lord and rage against the Lord's people, and even those that he raises up uh, who are trusting in the Lord are often opposed by wicked men on every side. We see that from the nations of the earth, but also, and perhaps most interesting and discouraging, we see that amongst Israel itself. The people who received the law of God, they were not just left in darkness altogether. God revealed himself to them, redeemed them out of Israel, out of Egypt, gave them his law, made it very clear what pleases him, what displeases him, and yet even still, routinely over and over again, they fail. They fail to keep this covenant. They fail to live up to God's commands. They do not listen. They do not obey him. They do not love God. Moreover, when God in mercy sends prophets to correct them, to call them back to their covenant that they have violated, Jesus himself has reminded us numerous times in Luke, what do these people do to these prophets? They persecute them and often wind up killing them. And now, the ultimate demonstration of depravity is playing out. God's not just sending an ordinary prophet, as impressive as that would be, as great as that would be, as merciful as that would be. He has sent his very son in human flesh. 
the perfect Son of God has come. He has done everything well. He has only done what the Father has told him to do. And he has done it perfectly. He has said and taught only perfect sayings and teachings. His tone has always been right. Everything he said and done has been perfect. He's done everything good, and yet he is rejected by many. And here, even a close friend, so-called, betrays him. The leaders of Israel, the people who, of, of all people, should know better. They're scheming, and they are plotting, and they exchange a little bit of money to have this man arrested, to have the perfect Son of God arrested. Now, we were not there as individuals. We were not there when this happened. But the sinful nature that resided in these men that are plotting here resides in us too when we are born into this world. And the potential for great evil exists in every human being. If you think of Mark chapter 7, it's not the only place, but Mark 7, Jesus tells us what it is that defiles a person. He speaks of human sinfulness. He says in verse 20 of Mark 7, and, and he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. We all share that corrupted human nature, that heart out of which flows sin. Now we may not have been there literally crucifying the Son of God, but notice in that list Jesus gives, it's not just murder on that list. Things like slander, things like gossip, theft, oh it's just a little bit, theft, it's not yours. There's all... Whatever sin we find ourselves to be committing, it is because we are sinful beings in our nature. And so we must compare ourselves to God's law. And when we do that, we find ourselves to be likewise guilty of sin before the Almighty God. We too are sinful men and women by nature. And even if we've not acted out in the worst possible manner in which we could. We've perhaps not murdered anybody, but yet we've hated people. We've gossiped and slandered people uh, to tear them down, perhaps ruin their reputation. We've lied. We've perhaps not committed adultery or fornication even, but we've lusted in our hearts and our minds. And so we are likewise sinful. This is evidence that we are not that unlike these men. We quickly want to distance ourselves from those who do particularly bad things. How fast we are to say, well, I thank God I'm not like that man. Right? I'm not, I didn't do that. I wouldn't go that far. We are very quick to distance ourselves from other people that we deem evil. And yet the fact is, every man and woman born has this fallen human nature. And so Jesus is on the cross because man is displaying his contempt for the Almighty. It is ultimately a, a display of who we are as fallen human beings. Sinful and rebellious against God. That's not the only reason Jesus goes to the cross. 
Secondly, at the cross, Satan is working his opposition and hatred toward God. Verse 3 tells us that Satan entered into Judas. This is the ancient enemy called the devil and Satan, and he is said here to enter into Judas, to influence Judas. Now again, what exactly does this mean, that he entered into Judas? Well, that's a, that, what exactly that is referring to is much debated. I think there are some things that we can certainly say. First, very clearly, Satan is influencing Judas. I think that much is very obvious. Uh, uh, elsewhere in, first, er, sorry, in John 13, it's worded a little differently, but it says that the devil put it into the heart of Judas. So there's an influence of, of Satan himself upon Judas here. I do not think, though, that this means that Judas has zero control of his faculties here. I don't think this means he is purely robotic. I do not think this means that he is crazy from this point forth, and this is obvious. Uh, for example, uh, the, one of the reasons I would say this is we're, we're about to get into next week the Last Supper. They're gathered around. They are eating. Jesus is going to say, one of you will betray me, and they all look at each other saying, who can it be? They're not sure who it is. So I think if you know, again, if we think of how Hollywood might portray this event, Satan entering into somebody, uh, it's probably not what was actually happening here. Uh, there's no deranged face or crazy voice or anything like that. Evidently, the other disciples couldn't tell. It was not obvious, right? If, if, it, if, if, if he was deranged and weird looking and they're like, one of you is going to betray me, I think they'd all be like, we know exactly who that is. So... Now, we have seen in other instances with the demoniac, for example, back in chapter 8, there he does, at times it says he was out of his mind. Uh, he, he had lost some control there. Um, but that's not the only way that demonic activity, that satanic influence, comes upon the world. 1 John 5.19, we're told that all unbelievers are in some way under the power of Satan. He says there the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We're told that false teaching is the doctrine of demons. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, Paul tells us that when people worship to false gods, they're worshiping demons. So on the one hand, we say there's no such thing as a false god, true statement. On the other hand, worshiping false gods is very bad. It's demonically influenced. When false teaching makes its way into the church, it's demonically inspired. It comes from the lips of men, but there's satanic influence there. And so I would say here, what we can say confidently is that Satan is acting in a unique and special way upon Judas. And I think it's, and, and, and it also is true that Judas is himself a willing agent in this. I say he's willing because while he's certainly, certainly influenced by the devil, he's acting as he desires. I think if a, a comparison would be those who would fit the bill of teaching doctrines of demons. They're simply teaching what they want to teach, and yet there's demonic influence behind them. I think Judas, it's the same here. He's doing what he wants, though he is being influenced by Satan. In verse 22, Jesus is going to say, uh, he's going to say explicitly there, that while the Son of Man goes, it is as it has been determined, woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Judas is culpable for his actions here. He's doing what he wants to do. 
So trying to discern precisely how this influence worked, precisely how he put it into Judas's heart, uh, what it means to enter him into him, I don't think it's entirely clear. And I think we, we can, if we chase that too far, we can end up in some unhelpful speculation. But it is clear here that Satan is at work. And he's clearly influencing Judah, Judas. And so as Judas goes off to betray the Lord, to betray Jesus to death, this is being portrayed to us as the desire and the will of Satan himself. This is what he wants. He influences Judas, and what does Judas do? Marches off to betray the Lord and hand him over. Way back in Genesis, right at the beginning of the scriptures, back in chapter 3 and verse 15, after Satan had tempted Adam and Eve and they fell, and while God is pronouncing his curse upon Satan, upon man, woman, and all of creation itself, he says to Satan there, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And so there in chapter 3, verse 15 of Genesis is the first promise that a seed would come from woman who would crush Satan, who would destroy Satan and crush his designs. And in the process of that happening, of bruising his head, this seed of the woman would have his heel bruised. So the picture there is like is stepping on the head of a snake and perhaps getting bitten on your way. That would bruise a man... Obviously, this is not a really badly poisonous snake. Uh, but the, if you step on the head of a snake, perhaps it bites you as you do that. It hurts your heel. It bruises your heel. But the snake dies, right? Much worse for the snake. The snake is crushed and destroyed. And the cross is where this event happens. When God says that the seed of a woman will come and crush the head of the serpent and the serpent will bruise his heel, that's what, this is happening at the cross. And so Satan by desiring Jesus to go to the cross, is lashing out against him and bruising his heel. Satan despises God. He desires to destroy all his plans, to destroy his ways, destroy his creation. And yet even as he reaches out to do this, Satan becomes a tool that God uses to bring about redemption. If you go to the other end of the scriptures in Revelation 12... Uh, depicts this very thing again, very vividly, in Revelation, in, 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 in fitting pictures for Revelation. On Revelation 12, we're told of a great dragon, great red dragon, that stands before this woman who's about to give birth, and that the desire for this dragon is to devour this child. This child, we're told, is a son who will rule the nations. So here is this seed from the woman. That was pronounced, that was declared, promised in Genesis chapter 3. That was promised would come through the line of Abraham. Then again told it would come from one of David's descendants. Here is this seed. Satan, this dragon, stands before this child, desires to destroy him. The child is very clearly Jesus in Revelation. The fact that the dragon wants to devour the child means he wants to destroy it. Bring all the plans to ruin. This is Satan's desire. He wants to destroy the sun. He would destroy the sun's plans through temptation earlier in Luke. We looked at that. Having failed that, this is where he goes now to destroy him. Revelation 12 also tells us we're told there uh, that the child 
escaped and was caught up to God, and therefore the dragon was unsuccessful. And then it says that the dragon then turns his warfare upon the woman and her children, which I would suggest to you ultimately is the church, is the Lord's people. So Satan's purposes, we know, will not ultimately come to pass. He desired to devour the child, and he was unsuccessful. Even as he's working to destroy the Son of Man, even as in some ways he has success in that Judas does go betray him, Jesus does go to the cross, even so as he strikes at his heel, Satan's own head would be destroyed through this. The cross is not just where we find man's depravity and hatred of God, but it's where we find the powers of darkness seeking to destroy the Son of God and destroy His work, seeking to damn all of humanity by destroying the God-man and keeping Him from reaching the masses and saving them. This reminds us also that there is more going on in this universe than we can see with our eyes. That's what this is telling us. There are spiritual forces of darkness at work. This is a cosmic drama that involves beings that we do not see, but who are yet very real and who are really, actually influential. This is why Paul reminds us in Ephesians 6 that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Again, things like false teaching are doctrines of demons. It's all part of the satanic game plan to try to destroy. The thief comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. And again, these teachings, this destruction might come through the mouths and the teachings of men, but it is ultimately satanically, demonically influenced. It is his plans, his desire to devour people through this. And so we have the hatred of man. We have the hatred of Satan being reasons why Jesus went to the cross. And yet there is a third perspective to this, uh, without which all of this would be really rather depressing and hopeless, discouraging. But we do have uh, the third perspective on this, and that is at the cross God is defeating Satan, and he's delivering man from sin. We have the divine purpose in this. And this is the purpose that we really desperately need to understand and believe. God's purpose in all of this is, is hinted at in verse 1. We might fly by it. But if we consider Jesus was brought into the world in the fullness of time, at just the right time, Galatians tells us, the timing of all of this is, is ordained by God. This is His plan. When the time was right, He sends forth His Son to be born of a virgin. And here we are now, the appointed time. Jesus has told us this is an appointed time, an appointed reality. He's going to Jerusalem. All these things must take place. It's been written of Him that these things would take place. And we are told here that we're on the eve of the Passover celebration. Again, this is not to be missed this is not merely historical coincidence. Luke is telling us this as a matter of historical reference. It is helpful. Uh, it explains things, numerous things, why there's so many people in, in, in uh, Jerusalem at the time, why Pilate is around, and so on. But there's much more to it than just that. We read about the Passover earlier in Exodus chapter 12. When the people were slaves in Egypt, the people of Israel, the Hebrews... 
Uh, there, when they were, God was bringing them out through Moses, he was sending plagues upon Pharaoh and upon the Egyptians that Pharaoh might release his people. And he kept refusing to do so. And the final plague was coming. And so the Lord, through Moses, told the people, you kill this lamb, you take a, a lamb without blemish, you slaughter it, and you apply the blood to the doorposts of your home. And if you do this, then when I send the destroyer to destroy the firstborn of all that's in Egypt, he will pass over your home and you will not be harmed. You will be delivered if you have the blood on the doorposts of your home. This was the final plague. And the result of this plague, after this would pass, would, would happen, Pharaoh would uh, be done and he would finally release the people, the Hebrews. Their exodus would really begin at this point. They would leave slavery in Egypt and they would go out into the desert. They would make their way towards the promised land. Now that whole redemption from Egypt is, is significant on its own. Um, but it is also, it's a type and it's a depiction of the later and even greater redemption to come. So in numerous places, Isaiah does this a number of times, in numerous places in the prophets, they will speak of, they know, you know, the, the redemption from Egypt is, is in the past, they're looking ahead to yet a future, more glorious redemption that is going to come, and they will speak of it with Exodus-type language. And so the, the, the Bible is, is using this as, um, as, as a type, showing us something, teaching us something of the greater redemption that is to come. Jesus, the seed of the woman, was indeed, as Peter says in 1 Peter 1.19, he was a spotless lamb without blemish. Now his blood does not redeem from physical slavery, but from the much greater slavery to sin, the much deadlier spiritual slavery to sin. Paul declares that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Do you see how, how Peter and how Paul understand the Passover? It is given, it is instructing us of a greater salvation, a greater redemption that would be to come. And now Luke is saying, oh, it's, it's the time of the Passover, and we'll see this even more as we get into the Last Supper here next week. Um, Jesus himself is the Passover lamb. As Paul explicitly says in 1 Corinthians 5. And so what Satan and what the chief priests are working for evil, God is intending for the most glorious good. His judgment for sin was poured out upon his son, the spotless, perfect lamb, so that all who would apply his blood to their doorposts, so to speak, that is by repenting of their sin, by trusting themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ, might not have God's judgment for their sin fall upon him. Instead, it falls upon the Lamb. So you see how the Scriptures prepare us and teach, help us understand what is going on when Jesus goes to the cross from God's perspective. You think of what the Passover meant. This Lamb is, dies, so the firstborn doesn't have to. Then we see this developed even more in the sacrificial system, Lambs and various animals are dying. Their blood is being spilt, so the offerer does not have to die. Along comes Jesus, even at the time of the Passover, and he himself offers himself so that those who would believe in him would not have to suffer the wrath of God. Rather, his wrath would pass over us and would land instead upon the spotless lamb, Jesus Christ. Satan and Judas did not so intend it. 
but God did. In a number of places in Luke, Jesus has already predicted this, this whole event. He knows this is coming. He's, remember back in chapter 9 at the end, verse 51, he set his face toward Jerusalem. Why? Because the climax of his earthly ministry was there. His death, his resurrection awaited him in Jerusalem. It had to happen in Jerusalem. He said it himself. It's a necessity. It's been, and one of the reasons it's a necessity is because he says it's a fulfillment of what has been written. All of the scriptures are leading up to this, are pointing to this. He has to come. He has to die. He is the sacrificial lamb. It must take place. And if we jump down to verse 22, again, we find the same thing. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. It has to be this way. This is God's plan. The cross was the... The way in which God intended to bring about redemption. It was fulfilling the declaration I read about from Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. And so Satan's claim over us that we are violators of God's law who therefore deserve, deserve judgment and damnation by God for our sins is broken by the cross for all who are in Christ because the debt has been paid. And so Romans 3 declares to us, God can be just and the justifier of all who have faith in Christ Jesus. We further see in, in chapter 22, we're not going to get into verses 7 to 23, but we do see in these verses the divine purpose of God in the work of Jesus on the cross. In these verses, which we'll get to next time, Jesus reveals to us that the intention of of behind spilling his blood is to bring about the new covenant. This is the new covenant in my blood, in verse 20 he says. Again, this is, this is another way of saying what, or another aspect of what it is I've been saying, that ultimately God's purpose here is redemptive, to bring about the new covenant, which again had been promised and had been pointed to throughout the Old Testament scriptures, from places like Genesis 3.15 to really clear, explicit discussion of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 and in many other places, Jesus' death and the shedding of his blood would bring about this new covenant. It's the turning point of history. The seed of the woman has come and by spilling his blood as a ransom for many, he brings about the new covenant. And so man really can be forgiven by God. The sins that God has forgiven in the past and just overlooked that might question his justice. How can he just let David's sins go and just forgive them? Where's the penalty? Where's the justice? It's laid upon Jesus Christ. And so, as again, the end of chapter 3 of Romans, God, uh, Paul declares to us there the logic of this, that God is, can be just and the justifier of wicked men because a penalty has been paid for those trusting Christ. The penalty has been paid by Jesus himself. And so as those believing in Jesus, we are in this new covenant and we have, we, we are therefore in right standing with God. And we have full access and rights as sons and daughters to access his throne. We can worship him in spirit and in truth. We do not go to Jerusalem for that. We worship him wherever we are in spirit and in truth. We come boldly to his throne of grace, not because we are worthy, but because Jesus our Lamb of God has shed His own blood, has offered His own body as our sacrifice for sin, 
has risen and ascended to the Father's right hand where he, ascend, or where he intercedes for us even now. And so Hebrews is telling us because of that, we come boldly in our worship. We come boldly to the throne of grace to find mercy, grace, and help in our time of need. In light of all of this, first, clearly, we, we must repent of our sins and place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, this work that he has done on the cross, it is for those who do this very thing. The response to this, the saving response to this, is to acknowledge and to confess our sin before God, to not, well, everybody's done something wrong, but rather to realize the depths of our sinfulness and our rebellion before God, that what God calls wicked, we agree is wicked, and, that, and where we find it in ourselves, where God's word exposes the dark corners of our hearts, we're not hiding it, we're bringing it to the light, and we're allowing God to expose it. We confess and we agree with what he says about these things, no longer rejoicing in these things, but acknowledging they are vile and they are sinful before God, and that what he says about how we deserve justice and, and wrath of God for our sins because we fall so short of his glory is just and good and right, and we agree with that. We re repent of our sins, and then we, we place our faith in Jesus Christ. We are trusting then that I have no righteousness of my own. I am a sinner in, who deserves God's justice. But then in faith, we, we turn and we look to Christ and we say, here is my righteousness. Here is my hope of forgiveness. That he has paid for my sins. That the cross is there to pay for my wretched condition and my acts. Trusting Jesus died to redeem sinners like me. And trusting that his blood is sufficient. Renouncing all of our own righteousness. All of our own efforts to try to make God, ourselves pleasing to God. Trying to bribe God. We must repent of our sin. Place our, our faith in Jesus Christ. This is the only hope. It's the central hope that runs throughout scripture. Of course, we're speaking of his death here primarily, his suffering, the cross. But he rose from the dead. He rose from the grave in victory. Again, Satan did strike his heel, but he rose in victory. The plan of Satan, the desires of Satan foiled. Jesus, victorious, has risen. He's at the Father's right hand, and he is returning. And throughout scriptures, we're told the proper response to this is to repent of our sin and to trust Jesus, to place our faith in him for the forgiveness of our sins. And for those who do this, this is also, as we look at these uh, verses and consider these truths, this is a call for us to worship the Lord, to worship him for his grace, to worship him for his mercy, and to marvel at the plan of God that he has worked out and revealed, to marvel at the wisdom and the power of God. As man raged against the sun, as Satan raged against the sun and unleashed his powers to try to destroy the sun in what appears to be the gravest of moments, the darkest of moments. God is yet at work in and through this, making the way of salvation sure for his people. And so let us rest here in the wisdom of God and, and, and praise him for this. Man would not design it this way. 
We are so limited in what we are able to do. And yet God, out of the gravest of evils, the death of Christ, is working the greatest possible good. And so let us also rest here in this wisdom of God. Rest here in the work of Christ. Let us put off all self-confidence and place all of our hope squarely and firmly and solely in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our Passover lamb. It is his blood that brings peace with God. And so when it comes to the cross, we see various purposes, various aims in men, their purposes and designs, in Satan and what he's trying to accomplish. And yet it is God's purpose ultimately that shall stand. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us here find rest and all of our hope. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do stop and we acknowledge before you that we are sinful. We acknowledge before you that though we have not done perhaps the most wicked things that we could possibly do, when your law shines upon our hearts, we see that we fall very short of your glory. And so, Father, we praise you for the wisdom of your plan and the, the power of your might to bring about redemption and salvation for your people. For those you draw to yourself. Father, we, we, we have nothing to bribe you with. We have no claim of our own for, for, for which you should listen to us or pay any attention to us. What, are, what is man that you are mindful of? And yet, Father, you've been so good to us in general ways, providing for us food, giving us life and breath and health, and, and above all that, sending Christ. Father, we just we praise you, we thank you. We are grateful that you work good even through that which is wicked and evil. Thank you that ultimately when things seem out of control, you are upholding the universe and that you are moving things toward its appointed end. Father, I pray that you would encourage us, encourage your people that are here today, that you would strengthen us, that we would rejoice, that we would be so overwhelmingly grateful for Christ and for his, his work of redemption, for his grace, that we'd be so overly, overwhelmingly at peace with this and, and, and joyful about it. So I pray that you'd encourage us, strengthen us to stand in light of these things. And to not lose heart easily. Father, we give you praise. We thank you for this time. And we pray all of this together in Jesus' name. Amen.